Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. On today's show, I'm glad to welcome Samuel James. Samuel is the Associate Acquisitions Editor at Crossway. He is the author of Digital Liturgies, a regular newsletter on Christianity, technology, and culture. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife, Emily, and their three children. Samuel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on today. Uh, We're going to be talking about your new book uh, that has uh, just come out with Crossway called Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. I was telling you before we got started that I've really enjoyed your book and that uh, technology and understanding it well, uh, living with it well in our world today is a recurring theme here on the podcast. So whenever I saw that you were um, coming out with this book, I knew it was one that I was uh, certainly interested in talking about. How long have you been writing about technology, and what initially piqued your interest in this topic? Yeah, so I think I've been probably on this beat for about four or five years. I I think the 2016 election and kind of the fallout from that is what drove me to kind of a first interrogation of social media and what could be the potential effects on Christians. Like how how are we how are we talking to each other differently? How are we thinking about things differently uh because of the this these ways of processing information and communicating to one another. So I think the election in 2016 was was probably kind of the the initial spark that had me thinking that way. Um, so I in in my blog and, and the blog eventually became a Substack newsletter. I would write, uh, you know, short little reflections uh, on kind of how I was noticing uh, difficulties reading or how I kind of was reflecting on the ways that streaming services kind of push their particular products on us. And then uh, doing a lot of reading on the side about kind of a really an anthropology of technology, not so much theology, since a lot of the people that I was reading weren't Christians per se, but they were kind of interested in the intersection of human thinking and digital platforms. And it was one book in particular, Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, Mm -hmm. that really crystallized for me um, the idea of there being a shape to the way that technology influences uh, not just what we say, but how we talk, how we communicate, and then how we think to ourselves, how we form ideas. Uh, and Carr kind of gave me the um, the physiological or the, the the cognitive blueprint for how this could be true. Uh, and then when I started to look at technology kind of from his angle, I saw the theological implications of what he was saying that. Uh, you know, God has given us minds and he's given us revelation that has to be uh, very carefully parsed. And you have in many of these social media technologies, you have tools that are calibrated precisely to elicit kind of a knee jerk 
emotional response. Uh, you have a way of reading and a way of processing information that in many cases is, is simply inferior to analog reading. And so our ability to comprehend big truth is, is handicapped really by the, uh, the media of digital technology. And that's, that was Nicholas Carr's big point. And then to apply that carefully to, to theological categories is kind of what led me on the journey uh, toward writing this book. Yeah, I love uh, Carr's book. That's one of the ones that uh, I've read before, and it's just um, yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, it, it's excellent, really helpful to understand uh, how uh, digital technologies are shaping us and forming us even more, or probably far more than we are shaping them. Uh, that's a consistent theme throughout your book that I think you explain really well, um, and we're going to get into that a little bit more deeply. But just you know, so the audience here that we're talking to today is primarily Christians. And I think many Christians, whenever they think about technology and the use of it, they think, well, you know, the only ethical concerns are the content and is it good or bad? And if I'm consuming bad content, well then obviously that's bad for my spiritual walk. Uh, and if it's good, then good. Um, but you, you start the book by trying to help the reader understand that the web itself has an impact on our spiritual lives. Can you, uh, start to introduce that topic for us? Sure. So a lot of evangelicals, as you say, are, are primarily focused on content. Um, so the question of what do I use the internet for? So if I use it to, for good things, if I use it to bad things, that's kind of the operative question. There's no kind of intrinsic uh, nature or character to the internet. We're, we're simply thinking of content. And I think there's reason to believe that it's not just content, but it's also form. So the form of the web itself uh, is actually pushing us towards certain ways of thinking and feeling that undermine Christian discipleship, that undermine thinking, uh, undermine relating to one another the way God would have us do. And uh, the internet is especially designed for a certain kind of uh, reactive, uh, more kind of multitasking, kind of skimming, kind of uh, quick shot uh, way of processing information, which because that's what a computer does. That's the nature of a computer. The nature of a computer is to take very small bites of information and process them as quickly as you can. And then the nature of the web in particular is built on kind of this infrastructure of diverting attention. So you go to a web page, and the web page is designed in such a way to so as to kind of uh, block your eyes in various places. So that's why people can feel, uh, especially the illusion of multitasking. It, we we know cognitively that multitasking is not a thing. Like it's actually impossible to split your attention genuinely in different directions. You're you're going to do several things poorly instead of a lot of things adequately. Um, but but it is true that the attention kind of uh, that we bring to the web is immediately diffused through the, through the just the way the web captures our attention. So there's uh, there's a lot of discussion about this in in Nicholas Carr's book. And so when we think about this from a Christian perspective, I think it's worth uh, examining the fact that when we communicate with with each other on social media, so say we're kind of wading into the latest theological controversy or we're kind of following this Christian guru or influencer type of personality. When we do that, we are actually very subject to all of these dynamics. And these dynamics uh, 
greatly undermine kind of the the call to careful reflection, the call to kind of biblical wisdom that we see in Scripture. And wisdom in Scripture is uh, very closely tied to uh, a sense of embodied reality. We we receive the world as it truly is, as the way God made it. God made us not as as minds that can just project without bodies, but he made us with minds and bodies, with hands and feet, with uh with hair and with skin. And that is that is just an irreducible part of who we are. And and eschatologically speaking, that's who we're always going to be. We're going to have glorified bodies, but we're going to be embodied creatures nonetheless. And so what happens, uh, the, the book's big question is, what happens when you take this kind of immersive digital habitat where people try to think and try to contemplate and try to uh, uh, kind of communicate with each other and, and all these things that Nicholas Carr refers to as intellectual technologies, kind of technologies that kind of shape how we, how we talk and how we conceive of ourselves and of the world. What happens when you place embodied creatures in that habitat and Basically, they, they start to live and act and communicate as if they are not embodied, as if they are simply uh, content producing avatars or uh, kind of, uh, yeah, self-perpetuating uh, wills that can that can simply delete whatever at any moment that can project whatever kind of image we want to at any given uh, moment. Um, so I think that's that's a crisis of of discipleship because that's not who we are. We are not the kind of selves that we project online. We 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 don't live that way. We aren't designed by God that way. And so what is what is the cumulative effect of the of the form of the web, not just the content? Is it is it possible that our our hearts and our emotions are being calibrated in a sub Christian way, even if the content we're consuming on the web is supposedly okay. And and there's a lot of good content on the web. There's This is not a, a denial of that. It's not an mm-hmm. argument for the intrinsic evil of the internet. Uh, but is it still possible that, that this could be uh, a non-neutral tool, that actually we could be being shaped in particular ways because of the nature of this technology? And that's what Nicholas Carr and people like Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan, they all said this. They all said that there is actually an, an intellectual ethic of of these uh, technologies. And I, I think that holds up very well under a, a Christian assumption of, of who people are. Yeah, these technologies are shaping and forming us and they're, uh, they're, they're changing us. One time I was talking about this to a group of college students and I asked them, is it a good thing that you have access to the internet, the whole internet with all of this information in your pocket all the time? And they all reflexively said, yeah, of course it is. I said, no, no, I mean, like, okay, is it, is it a good thing that you have that kind of access all the time? And they stopped and reflected for a moment. And, you know, I said, what is it doing to you? And they thought a little bit more in, and this girl spoke of and said, you know, I've started to realize, uh, I can't remember what she said. I started to realize ever since I got my phone or something like that, uh, that I'm less curious. Hmm. You know, she said, I'm less curious about things because I know anytime I want to know something, I can just look it up. And, uh, and, and, and hmm. you know, I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to get you guys to see. And I think what a lot of people uh, don't realize is that it's, it, it's shaping us. And, uh, you know, as you said before, it makes, um, whether it's uh, the web itself or apps that we use, they make it seem and they teach us, they try to teach us that 
uh, gaining knowledge and wisdom is something that can be done t- quick and easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever the it, the opposite is actually true, it's, it takes hard work, it takes time and diligence. Uh, so it's reducing our capacity to persist, to be diligent, uh, to focus, just as you said before. And so it's all those things that we need to be concerned about uh, as well, in addition to just content. You really get into this in chapter two. Um, and I thought that that was one of the best and most concise uh, explanations of this that I've ever seen. So, mm-hmm. so great job in that, that, that chapter, you guys were listening that chapter alone, I think is worth purchasing the book. Uh, the other chapters are great too, but that one, if you're, if you've been struggling to grasp this concept, you know, Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. A lot of people say that and don't know what it means and they can't explain it well. And whenever they think they know what it means, but Samuel explains it really, really well in, uh, in chapter two, if you want to go into that a little bit more explaining uh, chapter two, the title is how technology shapes us. It's essentially building and explaining on what McLuhan said in that famous phrase. Do you want to unpack that some more? Sure. Yeah. So McLuhan's book, I think it's called understanding media. Mm-hmm. Um, actually brings forward a couple different examples of how technology kind of creates different kinds of societies. And one of the examples uh, in understanding media is the the jet airplane. So I think he, I think he compares the jet airplane to the railroad, if I'm not mistaken. So so the idea is that, that the railroad and the jet airplane are both revolutionary technologies that create different kinds of cultures. So with the advent of the railroad, you now have towns that are being constructed in a certain way to accommodate a railroad. You have industries that exist because of the railroad. You have uh, ways of of people, and this is this is pers- more relevant for what we're talking about. You have people thinking of their lives and where they live and how they can travel differently because they have a technology that can get them, say, from uh, Louisville to uh, New York in a certain amount of time now. And the jet airplane is an is a example of that that revolutionized the idea of what it means to be a, a global person. So uh, you, before the jet airplane, if I wanted to if I wanted to think about maybe going to uh, England or going to uh, Africa, I had to contemplate a w- several weeks long journey by boat to get there. And that right there, the reality of that conditions what I think of the good life. So I might, I might have in my mind the idea that if I wanted to be a, an adventurer or an explorer, I want to, I want to hit the high seas. Uh, but that is a different thing than having a jet airplane that says, oh, I can just travel at whim. I can just go buy airline tickets and go visit London or go visit the Savannah. I can, I can do these things. And this is all compatible with kind of my, my highly modernized life because I can do that. And so that actually changes our definition of what it means to have a good life, of what it means to conceive of ourselves mm. kind of as citizens of one country versus another or yeah. as belonging to kind of a, a global citizenry. And so that's just one example of how technology creates different categories of thinking simply by virtue of what it is. We haven't even talked about whether that's good or bad or something in between. That's just reality that that technology creates those different kinds of of structures. And Neil Postman uh, really applied this to memorable effect in amusing ourselves to death when he talked about the television. So this was a book written in the 70s about uh, the effects of television on kind of public discourse and and the, the way that 
Postman was concerned that television kind of cheapened uh, the exchange of ideas by turning everything into an expression of entertainment. And his really memorable way of stating it was that television restaged the world. So when people watch a television sitcom or they watch a entertaining broadcast, they see a presentation of the world and it entertains, it comforts, it amuses them, it gives them delight. And so that actually in turn ch changes how they think all uh, life should be. So classic example of this is, is the sitcom. So you, whether you're watching, you know, Jerry Seinfeld and his three friends in their little New York apartment, or whether you're watching Full House and their, you know, uh, Brownstone in San Francisco, um, you're watching a particular uh, simulation of life. And as particularly as people kind of uh, consume this content year after year after year, there's a sense that, oh, life should look like this. Like life should be kind of funny and people should have the ability to do certain things. And there should be kind of this lightness to my general existence and a, and a, a sense of like novelty every day. Uh, that's one example of how a stage can restage how we see the world. It's a really insightful observation. And I think the effects of restaging the world are probably 10 times more potent online than they are ever were with television because with television you are still dealing with a, with a kind of a, um, a a very definite technology that tends to stay in its place and with the internet we're all carrying it around in our pockets and so to you know with with instagram in particular uh, when, when you check instagram and you see just these beautifully staged photos of people in front of these gorgeous settings or with their beautiful families there's a sense in which that kind of restages your world you're thinking my life should look like that my family should look like that my vacation should look like that all the while you're missing the fact that this is really content that has to be staged set up edited it's really an advertisement and so that's one way, one powerful way in which social media can actually condition our expectations from ourselves and of our world. And it's an impulse that is uh, goes back to just the, the very nature of what technological revolution is and how it kind of creates different structures in society that prop up to accommodate it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they they uh, condition us to, like you said before, to to think that we need to be entertained distracted all the time. I think that 98% of us today and myself is absolutely included in this are uh, distraction addicted. You know, it, it mm -hmm. becomes difficult to, uh, to just sit quietly and contemplate whether that's in your vehicle, in your commute, whether it's in your home at, uh, at the grocery store, when you're waiting in line, like we need to be distracted uh, from the world around us, from the ordinariness and boringness of life. Mm -hmm. uh, I've noticed that even the presence of those screens when they're not turned on are demanding our attention. Mm -hmm. One thing that we re recently did in our house was we moved our TV out of our living room because, you know, uh, many households today, the, the center of the house is centered around the TV. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I recognize from reading books like uh, Andy Crouch's book that mm -hmm. he came out with several years back, TechWise Family, how that uh, that that determines the the culture and atmosphere of your house where you are centered around that TV. So uh, we decided to do an experiment, move it to another room that would be just the TV room, and then our living room, which is kind of open with you know the rest of the house, would be screen free. And mm -hmm. uh, and we noticed it's only been a couple of weeks, but we noticed very quickly the change just in the atmosphere of our home. 
mm-hmm. there's there's less distraction by the screen because it's not even with it off it's demanding you mm-hmm. your attention uh we've noticed our, our kids are asking to watch something less it's uh there's, mm. there's that less distraction there whenever we're at home together we're more interested in talking with one another paying attention to one another rather than um that big distraction up there wanting to entertain us and so uh yeah we but because we kind of live in uh we're, we're swimming in the waters of this digital world until we take steps like that we don't recognize how much it's influencing us mm-hmm that's that's really insightful, and I, I I found Andy Crouch's um, perspective on that to be so practically minded that you can actually change the location of something, and it psychologically kind of almost resets you. And this is uh, this is kind of free for listeners, but that's very similar to what James Clear talks about in his book Atomic Habits about you know if you wanna if you wanna form new habits, make the new habit accessible and make the old habit uh, kind of hard to set, hard to find, hard, hard Hmm. to, hard to reach. And I think there's, there's just something fundamentally human about that. And if you, if you think like, okay, the fact that I have a television in the middle of my living room kind of communicates in a sense that the TV is the center of the family. Like this, this is kind of the center of gravity for, for where our family assembles and, and kind of how we, how we view our relationship to our home. Think of how far more potent uh, the smartphone is. So the smartphone is a, is a television with unlimited channels, with unlimited broadcast ability. Uh, it's far less regulated than a television broadcast is. And yet we are all not just setting those up in the middle of our living room. They're on our person uh, for, you know, 18 out of 24 hours a day. And then for most people, those six hours, the phone is right next to them, uh, charging while they sleep. So, so, uh, you know, we we really do have to, to step back from kind of how we take this stuff for granted now, because it's 2023 and we're just accommodated to it. And to contemplate for a moment, just how revolutionary this is. Like we, we have, we have windows that can peek into any kind of corner of the world that can summon any type of fantasy or any or satisfy any kind of inquiry that we might have. And we have those technological uh, pieces with us on our person nearly all day, every day. Uh, this is just a, a remarkably powerful technology. At that point, how can it not shape us? How can it not radically affect how we think of God, how we think of ourselves, how we think of each other in the world. Uh, I, I think people, people just kind of, you know, it's, it's the, the slow boiled frog theory. You know, if you, if you, if you want to boil a frog, you don't throw the frog into a boiling pot. You simply throw them into a cold pot and then raise the temperature uh, a little bit of a, a queasy uh, metaphor, but, uh, but the, the principle is true. Like we accommodate to radical change slowly yeah. and incrementally. Uh, and we miss the fact that that technology in particular, digital technology uh, actually has a revolutionary presence in our lives that, that we often really can't easily get out of. We, we don't really know how to change the ordering of our lives to, to accommodate that. Yeah. So once again, moving beyond just content, how is, technology today helping or hurting our growth and wisdom well in the so in the book i i kind of highlight five different ways five different ways to answer that question so i call these digital liturgies and what i mean by that is that you know a church's liturgy is it's kind of set of practices 
that kind of reinforce gospel truth. So, you know, there's a liturgical ordering to the church service where it's a call to worship, maybe with the proclamation of the word. It's a prayer of corporate confession. Uh, it's a, the, the singing of hymns and the preaching of the gospel and the taking of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. So combine all of that. And that is a, that is a, a habitat that presses the truths of the gospel onto our hearts. And the example I like to give people is if you came to church and, and all church consisted of was someone standing at the door and you come up to them and they say, the gospel is true. Now you can go home. Well, that's what they said was true. And what they said was biblical, but that would not press upon your conscience. The, the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of scripture, uh, nearly as much as the actual ordering of the service does. So, so the mm -hmm. purpose of the, the liturgical order of the service is to kind of create this massive plausibility structure so that the truth of the gospel, the reality of Jesus, the, uh, the reality of his church, those all become tangible realities to our affections. Like we feel that it's true in a way that is deeply formative, especially week in and week out as we, as we faithfully attend, attend the gathering. Uh, and so I look at the, the different kind of facets of the internet and kind of its, its ethics and its um, personality, so to speak, uh, the way that the internet shapes us. I look at those as five distinct liturgies, as five distinct kind of practical habits and rhythms that reinforce uh, a secular value system to us. And so I talk about uh, outrage and, and how, uh, you know, the web just seems combustible all of the time. And there's actually kind of embedded into the internet, there are shallow ways of thinking and reactive ways of communicating with one another that's simply intrinsic to what the internet is. Uh, I talk about shame and how cancel culture kind of grows out of this, uh, th this feeling of being able to control everything around me. Uh, I think a lot of people have grown up experiencing the world through a computer. And so, they bring to the world kind of computerized values of, okay, mm. if something upsets me or discomforts me, I should be able to delete it. I should be able to X out. I should be able to mute or block it. Um, I, and then I talk about kind of consumption and how uh, I think, I think the web is obviously contains much pornography, but I think even the, even the whole of the web is pornographically shaped. There's a, there's a pornographic nature to how the web kind of treats relationships, friendship, beauty, um, as consumable commodities that we can uh, avail ourselves of and then dispose. And we kind of, we stop experiencing life and just kind of want to turn life into something that we can consume at a distance. Uh, so those are three examples, but I, I think the book kind of looks at five distinct ways in which the internet shapes us kind of identifies why that is, what are the what are the aspects of online technology that actually contribute to this? And then if we compare that to what the gospel says, where is the where where does resistance come from? What is the truth of the gospel as opposed to to the the claims of this liturgical online existence? Mm. Wow, there's a lot there and what you just said that I want to get into. I'm trying to keep it all straight in mind so we can get through it. Let's just, okay, so let's start here. So can the church liturgies and the digital liturgies coexist? Because what I'm thinking of as, uh, as you were talking about the church liturgies is, well, what about these virtual churches, online services, mm. and so on that are uh, becoming more and more popular? 
I think they can coexist. I am less... Uh, I, I, I don't know that they can cohabitate. Mm, and okay. what I mean by that is, I, I don't know that if you if you try to put a church online, and, and there are different different extents of this. This is not monolithic. So some places have a live stream that they offer to anyone. Some places have a live stream that they only offer to members who are unable to attend. So there's there's a there's a spectrum on here. But I do think that that the the value system of the internet is intrinsically opposed to the the value system of the church service. So the church service calls on believers to assemble together to care for one another, the one another's in scripture, love one another, serve one another, prefer one another. Okay, that right there is impossible to do when you are a spectating church through a monitor. Like you, you actually cannot do that through a screen. It's impossible. It's like trying to hand you a pizza through our podcast connection. I can't do it. It's physically impossible. Mm. But then also there is a there is a shape to the web, particularly its values of distraction and consumption that kind of turn church into a, uh, a spectator sport. And I, I think why this is difficult for people to con conceive of partially is that for many people, church is already a spectator sport. And it was a spectator sport before the live stream ever was invented or hmm. got put up due to COVID. Uh, and so it, they don't, they just don't feel the reality of that because they've been going to church simply to download the sermon and the music into their brains. And that's to them, the purpose of church. And it yeah. feels like I can do that just as efficiently on in my living room at 10 AM as I can at the church. So why can't I do that? Uh, but I do think the internet reinforces the sense that this is a performance. This is a performance that I'm supposed to consume, just like I would consume a concert or consume a TED Talk. Uh, this is a performance that I'm supposed to consume. Hopefully, it'll generate kind of some emotional response in me. And that's the point. Uh, I get the emotional response. That's the benefit. And then I'm able to turn it off. Uh, that's just not what church is. Uh, church is uh, the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, church is the embodied gospel, is our Christians who are indwelt by the Spirit coming together. And in that, the, the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of the risen Christ is active among his people, uh, kind of shaping us all into the image of his Son together. There is a uh, there is an inescapably uh, kind of mutual uh, relationship that we have with each other in the context of the church. And you, you simply cannot uh, reduce that to something that you can consume. But of course, that's what the internet does. The internet takes all of life and turns it into a consumable commodity. And that's why, you know, you can, uh, you can get people who act like they're your friend on YouTube and you can kind of have like these simulated chats and relationships with them. That's why AI, artificial intelligence, you know, there are already movies written about people who form emotional bonds with these chatbots, you know, who can yeah. simulate personhood to them. Uh, that's what the internet does. And so I, I'm pretty skeptical that there is any long-term uh, benefit from kind of trying to place the, the, the form of the church inside the form of the web. I, I think one has to break the other. Mm. That's an excellent answer. And it goes back to what you talked about before and what's in chapter one, which is uh, the embodiedness of wisdom. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and that how God designed um, us embodied in a uh, physical world and how growth in the virtues that he desires for us are intended to be uh, grown and lived out in that embodied world. And because we downplay that or we just have completely lost the value for that, we assume that, like you said before, watching church is the same thing as attending church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think this is something that I don't know if you've ever read uh, Doug Grothe's uh, The Soul in Cyberspace. Came, he wrote it back in the 90s. And he makes a good point related to this because, I mean, he saw a lot of this w- way back then. And he said, you know, people will think that and claim that, well, I'm having uh, an experience of church, but he's saying you're having an experience of pixels mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and audio and data, but it's not the same thing. You know, it's, it's an experience of images and sound, but not the same thing as being there. I think anyone who maybe has this experience can help. It'll help to understand if you've ever had the chance to see one of your favorite speakers at a live event, whether it be a conference or church service, that you've listened to a lot of their sermons online. You know, I've had that privilege getting to see some of my favorite guys like Matt Chandler, John Piper, who I listened to a lot online, mm-hmm. but then I got to see in person a couple of times. And the sermon is far more powerful and just different in person than it is online because mm-hmm. there is that embodiedness aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and culturally we seem to be kind of coming to a reckoning on this, right? I mean, you have Taylor Swift's tour that is breaking all kinds of records and you know 75,000 people are crowding into an arena post covid to to attend a concert. I I think there's a there is an ambient sense in our society that we have kind of let the digital in a little too far. Like we've we've digitized our lives excessively and I I'm hopeful that this will turn into a recovery of in-person gathering of uh, of kind of physical spaces that we can meet together. Um, I think the challenge for for everyone, for Christians, for secular folk, is going to be how do you articulate the value of in-person, a physical community, uh, in a in a context where it's just hard and awkward and vulnerable. I think I think that the screen offers the illusion of protection. I think mm. I think people retreat behind the screen because it feels like they can be a little bit safe from the uh, the things that kind of make us dread being in person. So whether that's how we appear or you know kind of not feeling like we're we're able to kind of socially navigate a particular dynamic or just fearing that awkward silence. Um, I think that has become a, a major source of people intentionally kind of digitizing their entire lives to, to get out of that, uh, get out of the awkwardness. And I actually think that's connected in a very real sense to the, the worldview crisis that's going on with regard to gender. So we, you know, it's, it's become, it's become now normal to suggest that I am not my gender, that I, that, you know, the, the anatomy that you would see on me is not who I really am. Yeah. And I think partially that's connected to this sense of, uh, the, the person behind the screen can actually be different than the person on the screen that I can actually kind of project my mental self adequately onto the internet and exist as a person in this disembodied space, I think that's a plausibility structure that makes things like the gender revolution more likely than not. Yeah, I agree. I think those absolutely go together. And I think something you said before is also 
really nails it, which is that people uh, hide behind their screens. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that one of the main reasons that we uh, become addicted to our phones is because we use it as like a coping mechanism for social anxieties. And so you see this a lot with, uh, you know, someone in a social setting, whether it be more private or out, you know, in, in church, wherever else, and they're in the middle of a bunch of people, but on their phone. You know, and so I think it, it, it's usually, uh, you know, trying to deal with some uh, some of those social anxieties of some type. Sorry, I, no, I have my, I have a I have a little daughter right behind me. Yeah, that's I'll fine. be done in just a second, honey. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, I, I've got my my puppy here. The kids aren't home, but the puppy's here, and he he's probably making some noise in the background too. But. And I think the, and that connects to something you said earlier, which is that, um, which was one of those things that I was want to make sure we get back to, which is that people experience life these days more often through their screens and they, mm-hmm. they are, uh, observing other people experiencing life rather than experiencing it themselves. I think that's related to, um, you were mentioning the consumption, uh, digital liturgy and man, I, I think that's powerful and a lot to dig into there. Yeah, it's pretty concerning to me that, uh, as I mentioned in the book, we've we've kind of create we've we've taken the word porn and we've kind of created a suffix out of it, so that, you know, if we if you want to look at beautiful pictures of a night sky or the Grand Canyon, you post that online and all of a sudden it's earth porn, Uh, and if you if you take uh, you know food like a, a delicious meal. And you take a picture of it and you post it online. Well, that's now food porn. And I think there's something significant in that lingo. Like we, we are inventing a, a vocabulary that kind of reveals that we know what the Internet is good for. The Internet is good for taking experiences and turning that into kind of this empty uh, digital consumption. So uh, food exists to be eaten. Food exists to be enjoyed physically. Landscapes exist to to be seen and to to be inhabited uh they don't exist simply for content and yet that's what we do we we turn it into content because it accommodates our our cravings and our desires but it it doesn't really it kind of leaves us feeling empty at the end of the day uh, and so i i think a lot of people are experiencing this they feel they kind of feel that their day in day out existence is so kind of simulated that their you know their friendships are all via text or via DMs. Uh, their their learning and their experience of the world is all done through Google or uh, you know these online kind of web articles. They kind of feel like life is now funneled through their screen, that, mm. and they're that creates kind of a sense of discontent and a sense of restlessness. And I think that's good. I think I think it's supposed to. I don't think we're supposed to uh, have relationships that that we only encounter online, or that we kind of we have this kind of virtual self, and and this virtual self is out there, and it's not really connected to who we are uh, in in our embodied lives. Uh, so I, I think the ethic of consumption is is really endemic to the nature of the web. And a lot of people, a lot of a lot of men that I talk to in particular, and I know this is not just a men's issue, uh, but a lot of men I talk to in particular, talking about you know pornography and kind of you know how to help men overcome this particular problem. Uh, I think there's something to be said for the fact that a an addiction to pornography is an addiction to the internet, 
and mm-hmm. that it's it's not just the particular content on the internet that's the presenting issue it's the actual way that you're getting it is this way of experiencing the world that is actually harmful for you no matter what it's showing you if it's showing you uh you know friendships instead of pornography there's still kind of this deadening of your conscience to living life online and and when when you kind of show people that there's there's a different way to live there's there's joys and there's a real emotional presence and there's a sense of wholeness that's available when you when your attention span and your physical location are not fighting each other when your when your relational bandwidth and your uh your your kind of output are not explicitly severed from each other there's a sense of, of becoming a whole person again and i think people are eager for something like that and so uh to the degree that anyone might be listening to this who is kind of just struggling with with online pornography and, and doesn't really understand why you know their their re- resolutions and you know accountability structures haven't really worked the way they wanted them to i would invite them to consider the fact that it, it may be a, a medium problem it might be uh, you know, your life is is being conditioned online in ways that you don't you don't even recognize. And so maybe address the that issue and see if there's not a, a, a freedom that comes there. Absolutely. I would add to that that I think that it goes deeper than just lust. So often we talk about uh, pornography as just a lust issue and men or women need to get their lust in check. And obviously lust is involved. But I think there's there's a deeper emptiness that is uh, trying to be covered up. Um, and I, I think that it, it's a lack of purpose and meaning being experienced in uh, daily lives. And so whenever uh, they are experiencing that lack of purpose and meaning, well, then they need dopamine hits. They need mm-hmm. something to make them feel better. Um, and once again, this goes back to the broader point that the whole medium is conditioning people to search out that dopamine hit Mm. because you know what gives you the quicker satisfaction like you said watching food porn (laughs) Mm -hmm. or like going through all the difficulty of going to the store the trial and error of cooking baking whatever else and doing it for yourself Mm -hmm. you know even though we know like getting to eat the meal is obviously objectively better a lot of the times we do settle for just like watching some recipe or cooking videos rather than doing it for ourselves. And, uh, and so there's like, it goes back to an escape from experiencing life for ourselves because life, even the fun stuff, the, uh, enjoyable stuff comes with difficulty very often. Those pictures of the great hikes and vacations, you know, um, to get to experience any of that, it comes with like a really difficult, jog up a hill that's right yeah (laughs) you know it it, it comes with uh working hard so you can uh get some time off to be able to go to those places and 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 so budgeting correctly and using your time well and preparing well there's a lot of difficulty that comes with that and so we escape from the responsibility and difficulty that comes with experiencing life for the cheap dopamine hits that come from pornography or other content on the internet in uh in impossible people oz guinness wrote that he believed that at the very bottom of the uh, of the pornography problem was uh an escape from responsibility that was it more than anything else and i thought that uh i thought that was profound yeah i think that's a really insightful point that life is uh very much one of labor and of suffering and of kind of enduring the short-term pain for the longer-term payoff Uh, And if there's one thing that the ethic of the internet is decidedly against, 
it is the idea of short-term pain for long-term payoff. Like the, the, the values of the computer system are intrinsically opposed to that because it's, it's instant. It's instant gratification. Whatever you want, you can find instantly. Whatever you don't want, you can click out of instantly. Uh, and so the, the, to the extent that the web has kind of mediated our experience of the world, and I think that's true of a lot of people. I think, I think people who are older may not really understand that uh, there is an emerging generation of U.S. adults for whom the internet was the definitive medium for how they learned how to communicate, how they learned how to read, how they learned to, to experience the world. And for, for people for whom that's true, um, there's, I think, a, a category lacking of sacrifice, of kind of enduring hardship for the sake of something better, because the, the values of the immediacy of the web have just deeply shaped what they expect from, from life. And I think that's true of, of all of us to probably a, a sizable degree. Yeah. Well, we've only had time to hit on a couple of the liturgies. Uh, Samuel writes about several uh, digital liturgies, he calls them here in the book. And uh, they're all uh, really profound. Like I said before, I, I have really enjoyed this book. I've read uh, not as much as others, uh, but I've read a fair amount in uh, this topic. And, uh, and, and, I, and I'm really impressed and uh, uh, recommend this book. And so uh, you guys, if you're interested in picking up a copy, go to the show notes. There's a link below, and I'll have it linked there so you can pick up a copy of Digital Liturgies to read about um, uh, wisdom, to read about how technology is shaping us in these digital liturgies. Uh, Samuel, anything you want to leave with our audience before we go? I am very grateful for this opportunity. Thank you very much, Aaron. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on Filter today. Thank you, brother. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.